Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to another episode of Best of Health Radio with Bar Regis, sponsored by Ask the PA. We just launched our website called www.askthepa.com. And on the website, we basically have information about my book and about how you can reach out to me and ask any medical question you want, and I will try to answer it. Today on the show, we are waiting for our guest, Gina Orr. So while we're waiting, I have the privilege sitting right beside me to have the famous, (laughs) amazing owner, CEO of Phoenix Business Radio X, Karen Nowicki. I need you to do all my introductions hey, going I will forward. Do. Yeah. I mean, like, it's a pleasure to sit beside you. I am thrilled to have you and uh, excited to talk about your book and your website. We're also expecting, I think, almost 400 people here today. You're going to stay on with us for a celebration around conscious capitalism. That's uh, awesome. So it's a busy day here at Max 6. It's exciting. When I came in the parking lot, it was like almost all the way full and there's all these fancy tables and all these logos and I can't wait to hear all these people are speaking including you tonight. I will be one of the speakers but let's save that for when we are downstairs celebrating and hobnobbing (laughs) with the conscious capitalist business owners. Let's talk about your book first if you don't mind I would love to have you share with us what are you hearing from your readers about surviving the business of healthcare knowledge is power. Well, it's been pretty exciting because we've sold over 100 books, uh, primarily on Amazon and Few and Kindle, and we have the audio book almost finished. And what I'm hearing is people are really enjoying the book. They're learning some things that uh, they're carrying through to their healthcare providers, and they're advocating for their families, but they're really digging some of the stories about the past as a kid growing up in the small town of Coopersburg and how I integrate that into what kind of makes me me and why I have a passion for healthcare. The reviews have been fabulous. Thank you, thank you, thank you for all of you that have taken the time to review the book. And what I'm really hoping is, is that this book goes viral because it's a real simple read. It's something you can read in a few hours, but I think it'll make you think about where healthcare is today, where it was in the past, and what you need to do to be empowered to make better decisions for your care moving forward. So I'm pretty excited about it. It is an easy read. I was blessed with the opportunity to read it even before it was hardbound and a real thing, right? Even before the cover had been Thank you. created. And I just remember giving you a call afterwards and saying, oh my gosh, this is such a beautiful story, as well as advice and thoughtful care, bringing the whole idea around how to become your own advocate for your health. And we don't know as general lay people what questions to ask, what uh, maybe medicines we should be taking, where we should do our research, where to get the best prices for certain things, and and who to go to for specialists. And you really cover a lot of that in the book. But even after the book, life, well, while you were writing it, life shifted for you, right? right? So you started off writing the book as a physician's assistant and an advocate for healthcare because when you were in private practice for yourself and for us personally, the Nowicki family, Someone who I knew I could count on and rely on to guide me in the right direction for our health. And you are not just our private care oh. physician, but so many other families. Yeah, it's that, been an honor. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And you learned that from your dad. Families. Yeah. Right. And my grandfather. For, yes. So this yeah. legacy of, of being in this medical field has continued for you, which was the catalyst for the book. And then while writing the book, you were diagnosed with melanoma. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
two days ago, it'll be a year that I got the diagnosis and I'm finishing my immunotherapy in another month and I'll have a PET scan and hopefully I'll be no evidence of disease. And I'm hoping that um, with, with uh, you know, surveillance and vigilance that um, I have a long, long, fruitful life ahead of me. But I'm realistic to know that I've got to be staying on top of this and not become complacent. And so, yeah, it's been a humbling experience to all of a sudden be the cancer patient and be feeling weak and at the same time um, having a lot of uh, issues with my family with my mom's death and um, recently my brother-in-law's death in a plane crash, losing my dog. So this last uh, year was just talk about a trial and crazy yeah and you and through it all you've stayed steadfast you've continued Thank to you. work full time you've published the book you've been doing your radio show and i remember you saying to me either over coffee or by phone that there has got to be a bigger reason right. for why you've had to go through all these things in such a short amount of time and it, it to me and and i know to you as well it it's got to be because you are the voice for so many people around being their own healthcare advocate and and finding someone like you who can help answer some of those questions as they take the responsibility for their right. own health in their own hands. And it's scary. And when you're living it, I think you have a much better understanding for what everybody's going through when you live through chronic illness, uh, cancer, a child's illness, uh, you you become uh, more grateful for the just the simplicities of life along the way. But for me, it was kind of like one of those things where either I was going to pity myself and and just do nothing, or what I was going to do is tur- turbocharge my life and try to do some things that few people thought probably I couldn't do. And I still, you know, it, this is not egotistical or anything, but I really want to be the voice for so many people. And somehow I just hope the right person out there will hear my sincerity and give me a shot. Time will tell to see if that ever happens. But there's a lot of things that we're doing behind the scenes. There's a couple things I can't talk about right now, but I am super excited because if these things work out, we have potential to change so much with the masses. And so I have that project that I'm working that's very, very incognito right now. But when oh, I love the mystery. Yeah, mystery I can't talk about it. I can't talk about <laughs> it. But like, it. I'm so excited. But and every time I, I kind of like pitch it to certain people, but I do tell them this is in total confidence. I'm getting really good feedback. So I'm hoping that happens. But one of the other things that happened as a result of this is that I decided to uh, launch my business, my side business, because listen, I work at Premise Health for Inside Enterprises. I love that job. I'm not going anywhere. It's the best, but the best of health advocacy. And what we're doing here is we're advocating for patients. And that's why Ask the PA evolved and hoping that you guys will reach out to me and ask me these questions and see if I can help. And also, I'm a medical professional legal consultant now. In the middle of all this other stuff, that's the other decision decision you made. You're like, ah, in the middle of all this, I think I'll go. And, and, and that and, was as a result of my mom's death, right. to be honest with you. But I can't talk about that uh, right. at this point. But I became the consultant in the hope this, that I could help uh, law firms uh, look at records and advocate for um, providers that may be in trouble and also people that are actually questioning providers' care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's pretty exciting. I, I have to say on the record, I think I have my first case. Um, it sounds like it's going to go forward. So we'll see. So a lot of good things happening as a result of um, the craziness. And I want to thank you personally, Karen, for being there, not only as uh, what I 
consider a very close friend because we've known each other for a long time. But everything that you've done to support me and my family, and I'm gratefully appreciative of that. Well, it, it goes both ways, right? Yeah. We've had some health crises and issues and just even life I don't know what you call them. It's been crazy. Life huh? piece of crap <laughs> here and there over yeah. the years that we've known each other. And you've yeah. been such a great advocate and support and friend for me as well. And uh, and so it's so fun to watch you really just rise to the occasion and put yourself out there to be that advocate for so many people who need it. In fact, we had a segment yesterday uh, with my friend Susan Worley, who I've known for years. She's a health coach. Uh, she's actually my Juice Plus uh, provider uh-huh. and has been for years. And we mentioned you on that segment. And then afterwards, she's like, tell me who that gal is. What's her name again? And what's the name of the show? So I grabbed your uh, book off the Thank shelf, you. handed it to her. She's taking pictures. And then right before she leaves, she says, it, is it okay if I borrow that book? It looks like a quick read. And I promise I'll get it back to you right away. I'm like, of course you would. So she took it and and I have no doubt that she'll be leaving you a great review and, oh. and getting in touch with you very, very soon. Thank you. Yeah. Karen, we're going to switch gears. I'm excited. So are, thank are we you okay for that. We, we are okay. Yes. Please introduce your guest and I'm going to take care of her and make sure she's all good to go as okay. we settle in. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in Phoenix, uh, the rush hour hits and, uh, you know, had to have a show at five o'clock, huh? <laughs> well, I've got to tell you that this is a show that I have been, like, really excited about. I heard about this lady. Her name is Gina Orr, and she's the CEO and founder of a company called Passion for Patients International. Now, when I hear the word passion and I hear about patients, I get all excited because that's I kind of feel like I don't even know Gina Gina nice to meet you she's across the table right now and we've never met and she dodged in she put you know her headset on she got her microphone ready Gina tell me about you tell me about how you got to the point of launching passion for patients welcome to best of health radio thank you very much for having me it's great to finally meet you face to face what an honor for me thank you So Passion for Patients has been quite a journey for me, and uh, I worked with donors in the West Valley Mm -hmm. who were, uh, you know, attending, going to the hospital a lot because they were elderly. They're living in Sun City and Sun City West. And I watched as, I watched as physicians became frustrated with their inability to connect with their patients because of all of the administrative challenges that they had to, to run their practices. At the same time, I watched patients or the donors that I worked with who were giving generous donations to build those hospitals. I watched as they were going through the most vulnerable time in their healthcare journey, and I saw that they were being treated like nameless, faceless billing folders. And I thought, what is the disconnect here? Everybody's frustrated. Our system has become, you know, assembly line healthcare, and nobody likes that. And then it became personal. My mother took a fall and was in a very well-known teaching hospital, Mm -hmm. and she had broken hip, cracked vertebrae, compression, her thoracic area, in ICU for four days, and we watched as her attending physician came in, made notes in her chart, and walked out. She did not talk with my mom. She did not look to my mother. She did not touch my mother, and that was my tipping point, and that was my tipping point that made me determined to find a way to bridge that gap between these patients who felt like nameless, faceless billing folders physicians who were frustrated at not being able to connect with their patients like they wanted to. So that's what launched Passion for Patients. How many years ago was that? 
I had the concept eight years ago, but my mother's fall and subsequent death four years ago was the real tipping point. I am point. so, so sorry. You and I already have something in common there with my mom's fall and death yes. eventually. Yeah. I just think you are spot on. I've been in practice for 22 years and, and owned my own practices. And one of the things that I really learned early on is that you need to connect with your patients in order to be able to help them. And I also noticed that as medicine was becoming more and more difficult and with the introduction of EMRs, with the introduction of analytics, with the introduction of all this, what happened was the ability to actually have a one-on-one -on -one conversation like we're having without a computer in front of us has almost gone away for so many providers. And that is so sad. So tell me, tell me about how you launched your business and kind of explain to me like one of your clients and like what you do and how you go and what, and what happens. Well, first, it's a blast. I am having more fun with this, and it really ignites my passion even more. I learned a lot about soft skills and body language and listening skills and all of that by working with members of the greatest generation. You know, they didn't sit down to eat. They would dine, and they would write a thank you note when you took them to lunch. Mm -hmm. And the thank you note was not, thank you for taking me to lunch. It was, that was the highlight of my week when I got to spend time with you and dine at this cafe. So I learned a lot by about all of the communication styles and skills from members of the greatest generation, and that impacted my life a lot. Mm -hmm. I was fortunate to be able to work um, in a position where we were fundraising to build hospitals. So you really got to know people, physicians and right. donors. And so that was very impactful for me. So we designed workshops around four basic topics. The first one is about communication, the verbal and the nonverbal. Right. The next one is about um, incivility in the workplace mm -hmm. and how that impacts the patient experience. The next one is about handle with care, which is how the patient is passed from one person or department right. to the next. Warm handoffs. And the final one is uh, the the um, lasting impression. So, you know, did you close the loop on everything? And so each of our workshops is highly interactive. We pair people up and they practice with each other. And you can see the light bulbs going off when right. they're thinking, boy, I didn't realize that when I was standing with my arms crossed and I was tapping my foot and frowning, that my coworker would think that I was upset with them, which made the patient experience not very pleasant at all because we were bickering. Right. And patients see it. And, and honestly, what I learned was the very first impression is that first interaction, whether it be the phone call to schedule the appointment or the receptionist at the front, and that's going to break or break an experience just to start with, right? You are absolutely right. You know, patients spend maybe 30% of their time with the physician. So everything else is a bigger part of their impression as they're going through their appointments and their healthcare journeys. We, we like to draw the parallel in some of our very early discussions about the director of first impressions. Right. Or is she a window witch? And we have heard, we've seen practices where they're, eat, you know, oh. everything in between. Oh, yeah. And the patient, you're right, the patient picks up on that. And, and you know, my parents' generation, our parents' generation would not question a physician. But now we're seeing the consumer is going to do a lot of research before they even get to the physician right. office. And they're going to expect more and they're going to make choices. If they are not treated well in their experience, they'll go elsewhere. Oh, absolutely. They've got a lot more choice. And I think... If you have the uh, attitude of being partnership, 
partners in someone's health. And what I tell patients is like, I'm going to, you know, chat with you about what the problem is. We're going to figure it out. I love lists. Now think about how many providers, like I have five minutes to see you. You only have one complaint right now. Mm -hmm. Let's get her done. And as we're doing it, we're typing on our EMR and we never looked at the patient and it's like, what experience is that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and I love the fact that you're going in and you're actually, and I'll say it, you're calling it out. Well, we are, and, and and we have some hard to have conversations oh, with yeah. people. I bet. One, one of around incivility in the workplace. Mm-hmm. We talk about exclusionary behavior, so people are kind of looking at us exclusionary behavior, and we draw the parallel. If I'm speaking my native language, which may be one that you don't speak, mm-hmm. and I'm in the break room with somebody else who speaks that same language. And you walk in and we stay speaking in that same language, you're probably going to think we're talking about you. And we may not be. We might be talking about our kid's soccer game, but you're going to think that we're talking about you. So then when I need help later in the day with a project, you're still going to have your feelings hurt because you were excluded. Are you going to be willing to help me out then? So some some people, when we're doing these classes, they'll say, well, you know, we should be able to speak any language we want to speak. This is the United States of America. And you're exactly right. But think about the impact that has on the patient. So a parallel that they often get is when we talk about getting our nails done or having a pedicure. And there's typically a certain race that that provides that service. And so they talk about, oh, yeah, when these two were talking in their native language, I know they were saying, Gina's too old to be wearing that nail polish. She should not be wearing that color. So they get it with another industry, but not with their own. So when you allow them to have that discussion and then you play back to them what happened in the break room, they get it. That's great. I love the fact that you're doing a lot of role playing stuff like that and then taking um, outside businesses and applying it to healthcare because for some reason healthcare seems to be and so there's an attitude that it's on a pedestal and you know we should be able to do what we want and that kind of thing and and those days are over and those people that don't get that concept they're going to be in trouble with their businesses absolutely big time so i'm sure one of the things that you realize is that when you're chatting with them i i can i can imagine that you know, you also talk to the providers about how it has an impact on their business as well, right? Absolutely. It, it does have an impact on their business because people do have more choices. Now they're a more informed consumer than they may have been in the past. So they will leave and go elsewhere if they don't have a good experience. We also know that the reimbursement formulas are also um, more impacted by patient experience than they ever have been in the past. That's been the case in hospitals forever, but not so much in medical practices. So now that that is overlaying onto the reimbursement piece for medical practices, that's a big part of that as well. Something that is is just a wonderful aha moment for us when we're doing training is when we find um, the staff who's really dedicated to having that patient experience be the best in the world, and they know they have a big piece of that. And they're concerned because maybe they have a provider or the physician or a leader who does not have those same people skills and may not have that same passion about the patient experience. We do a lot of work around managing up as well and how to ask questions so that nobody's embarrassed. You know, an example with my father, when he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, 
he did not know what that meant. My dad was an educator. He was a high school principal. And so he didn't know the medical terminology and jargon. And had the physician been watching my father when he got a cancer diagnosis and realized that this man didn't have any kind of reaction, he may have phrased that differently. So we work with medical assistants and receptionists and nurses to watch the interaction between the provider and the patient to make sure that the patient is understanding give them tips and techniques to ask the questions so nobody is embarrassed by the discussion. So do you do a lot of work with providers as well? We find that when the providers are in the workshops, then the medical etiquette culture is elevated across the board because the providers are hearing everything else that, that the entire staff and team are hearing, and they're all held to a higher standard then. The practices where the providers think that they don't need the training don't seem to have as great results. And what's really interesting is I'm really particular about the uh, offices that I refer to, and I have a lot of really good relationships with um, with with many providers because I've been in the East Valley for you know 22 years. And it was interesting. I'm not going to say the name of the practice or anything like that, but there was a provider that I used to refer to all the time. And one time he reached out to me, and he's a great provider, no, no doubt. I, I love this this provider. I think he's awesome, and I actually think he provides a great patient experience. Okay. But my patient's perception was it was such a hassle factor to get in to finally see this amazing provider that it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the hassle about my insurance. It wasn't worth the hassle of them rescheduling my appointment every time. It wasn't worth the hassle of me walking in and them not even looking at me and saying, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. It wasn't worth the hassle of, of being told that my provider was running a half hour late. And my time is as valuable as your time. And I, and I tell my staff that, that our patient's their time is as valuable as our time. That's why if we're not on time, we need to make sure that they know why we're not on time. Exactly. And so it's really interesting. It works both ways, right? It does work both ways. And, you know, there's a lot of research and studies that will show that if if you connect with a patient and you explain to them that you're running behind mm -hmm. and you use the connector word because... Dr. Nowicki had to stop by, you know, pick her son up at the daycare because he was sick. You know, if you give somebody a reason and an explanation and, and if you touch them appropriately, you know, on, right. on the forearm, that stops their time clock. And there's studies that really show that if you acknowledge their presence and you talk with them about this, and nine times out of ten, even if you were to say to the patient, is if this is inconvenient for you to wait, would you like to reschedule? They won't reschedule because right. they've been acknowledged and they've been spoken to like they are important. Right. And I think that's really important. And I also think, too, sometimes patients, if they know that their provider is really consistent and they know their provider has a day that's maybe a little off because there's something personal going on, they'll give them the benefit of the doubt because they look at the they look at the big picture, you mm -hmm. know, and I think that's really important to develop those relationships. And when I had third year and fourth year medical students and PA students, I would tell them, you know, it's all about relationship building and gaining trust. And then the other thing I would tell them is that, as you become experienced in practice, what happens, and I hate to use these words, but you will profile your patient and you will figure out what it is that your patient expectation and you will adapt the way you practice as long as it's standard of care and good practice to what their expectation is. So Janet's expectation may be, I just need you to talk to me for 15 minutes about XYZ, XYZ. I was hurt. John's expectation might be, I need to get back to the boardroom in five minutes. So like, let's cut to the chase, do my strep test, get me the heck out and make sure that the electronic prescription is done right. And so it's kind of like learning how to help 
providers understand that you have to adapt to your patient's personality mm-hmm. too. And it's not about you being on a pedestal. 22 years ago when I graduated, one of the things I, I made a commitment to was I never wanted to wear a white coat. <laughs> never wanted to wear it. And so I went to one practice and uh, it was mandatory, but within about six weeks or so, the white coat started coming off. Mm -hmm. And then before you know it, three years later, that practice actually was not wearing white coats anymore. And and I mean, I think like the white coat thing is is like, I can get if you're a surgeon and I can get if you're doing a procedure and it's going to get dirty or something like that. But to me, that's a barrier. What do you think? We Thank you for bringing that up. We do a lot around barriers and there's physical barriers, there's implied barriers, and some Sometimes the barrier might be the uniform. Sometimes the barrier might be a clipboard. It might be a desk. It might be the window at the front desk. It might be somebody's shoulder blades as you're turning around to type into your into your laptop and the patient's sitting on, on the exam table. So there's a lot of barriers and there's, there's uh, implied barriers around the nonverbal communication as well. And, and as we do our workshops, Barb, we you know, we tell the teams that this is what your day is like. You know, there's going to be a distraction because of a, of a fire alarm or because of a door slamming or a phone ringing. Those can be barriers to communication. Your role is, as you just said, is to watch the patient. And if they don't seem like they're hearing what you're talking about, then to back up and say it again, because there was an interruption in that communication. So there's a lot of barriers to communication. We also find that you know, with the interactive parts on our workshops and people really get it, you can see how they feel empowered to be a partner in yeah. the healthcare journey. And if a physician supports that empowerment, the team is so strong and so vital and the outcomes are so much better. Yeah. And I think uh, actually everything you say is amazing and I, I totally agree with it, but I'm going to throw a little curveball at you. Okay. Okay. Sometimes there's an emergency in the office. And sometimes, you know, people are trying to work on that experience and everything like that. But sometimes everybody has to just stop and realize we've got an emergency. We may not be quite as soft, warm, and happy, fuzzy about it because John Smith is having a seizure right now. And right now I need you to do A, B, C, D, E, F. And we can, you know, talk about it after the fact. I actually had an experience at a place that I worked where we had that exact same thing happen. And what happened was the staff was so trained for the warm handoff and we all do everything like kind of like equally (laughs) and everything like that. And when I had to go into action mode, staff didn't know how to handle it. And as a matter of fact, they were upset about it. And I said, you know what? At the end of the day, if I think my patient's life's in jeopardy, we sometimes have to change the mode and we have to get into the mode of let's save a life Then we'll talk about it later. And so if I tell you, go do this, go do this, it's not because I'm trying to be rude to you or anything. It's because we have to do that. Do you ever in your training sessions kind of talk about those transitional pieces where sometimes guys, you got to just practice medicine and do what's best for the patient to save a life. Absolutely. And that's a, and that's explain a, that to me. That's a huge part. And, and so when you have to go into survival mode or you know, your patient is really you know struggling with a seizure or whatever it might be, 
the team is is well trained and they are efficient at the medical piece to it and the soft skill things will have to wait until a little bit later so when you have this reciprocal communication we can debrief on this later and it's not about me you know don't you know my feelings may be hurt that isn't the point because the priority is the patient exactly the priority is always the patient so if somebody is a little bit abrupt because your patient is gasping Focus on the patient. So you can talk about that later. And, and so we do address that. You I'm, know, I'm glad we you do. do address that. Yeah, because I think that's a really important piece because those things happen once in a while. And then what happens is all of a sudden there's a lot of hurt feelings. And then you're trying to justify why you did that because no one's ever seen it before because they've never been in an emergency before. And you're like, going, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, and, and it's healthcare is tough. I mean, remember what we're doing here is like we're trying to provide the best patient experience possible, but we're also trying to teach the best staff and provider experience possible and try to mix, commingle all of that. And so that's, that's really challenging, you know, especially when these days you're having to see 40 patients to make ends meet in a family practice. A lot of family practices, you know, they're seeing 30, 40 patients. I'm hearing like these young PAs out of school on Facebook, it's social media talking about I'm working till 11 o'clock at night and I went to school thinking that it was going to be X, Y, Z. And and this is not what I signed up for. I'm hearing, uh, you know, I'm hearing physicians, the same thing. Like I went to medical school because I thought it was going to be this way. Then they get into this and they're in these systems where we're more wrapped up about the analytics, the metrics, and the EMR that what's happening is, is the comments I get from patients when they go to see, especially uh, providers that haven't been out for a long time, that they're more worried about getting their work done and the EMR than what my problem is. Exactly. So how do you work with like those, how do you work with that group and also the older docs and PAs and nurse practitioners are like, I don't want to have anything to do with this stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you well, do that? So part of that comes under the incivility in the workplace because you have generational differences, right. generational expectations. The old, the older, the more seasoned professionals that have that one mindset and the younger ones who aren't willing to make that kind of commitment. So I think it's really important to have these discussions about expectations. And, and again, it's, it's the patient first. So when the team is empowered and and supported to be part of that, it can part of the of the journey and, and the partner with the patient, that can take some of the pressure off of the physician. You know, right. so there there are administrative things that they have to do because of the way healthcare is right now, and it's not their favorite thing to do. But if you're allowing the rest of the team to be as close and supportive of the patient journey as you are, that just makes a more productive and, and well-oiled team, if you will. Right. And then, and it's interesting, so far, all we've talked about is actually the patient coming into the office and having that experience in the office. We haven't even touched on trying to get authorizations, trying to get patients into specialists, having that cohesive conversation between specialists and providers and that whole thing. Do you touch into those issues when you're doing these uh, workshops? Thank you, Barb. When we're doing our workshops, we frame the discussions and these are life skills that can follow you home. And then when you have to go to your daughter's principal's office, it'll help you with that communication. If you're having an HOA meeting and you have, you know, bristly people there, these kinds of communication skills will help you there. So the other outcome that is in addition to the patient experience is this is tremendous for team building. And when I say team building, 
it could be a vendor, it could be a referral source, it could be a referral source into you. It's how you communicate with everybody on the healthcare journey. It's almost like the uniform, putting on a uniform that is framed and supported in excellent communication skills, which includes listening also, non-judgmental listening. You know, don't make it up exactly. as you go. Yeah. We and and nowadays this and I know Karen has heard this before, but nowadays with so much electronic communication, you know, we we know that 93% of our communication is the nonverbal. Well, now when we factor in electronic communication, that's a whole other piece. And right. we do this very, very fun exercise around texting right. and how when you text, you don't have the uh, the luxury of pauses and, and emphasis. And then if you're texting in all caps so that I can make sure... You're, like you're yelling. Yeah, they think you're yelling. Yeah. Well, no, I just didn't have my glasses on. I wanted right, to make exactly. sure I had no typos. And then we also do an exercise around that, that when you emphasize a different word in a sentence, how that changes the meaning. In particular, we use the sentence, I didn't tell her you were stupid. So when you emphasize, I didn't tell her you were stupid, it implies that somebody else told her. Right. I didn't tell her you were stupid, but I'm going to. Right. I didn't tell her you were stupid. So we do these exercises and That's even, cool. even, you know, the physicians will be like, you know, I, I need to, I need to hear what I'm saying to people as well. And I need to, I need to better interact with our vendors and our suppliers and our referral sources both ways in and out. So it, it really frames the entire operation. And I think to have a successful practice, that's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. You need to get off your, you know, pedestal. You need to get away from the arrogance trail. You need to realize that we're all a big team here and that we're all dependent on everybody doing their jobs in the correct way. And, and, and our job doesn't end when the patient leaves the office. It's actually just begun. Exactly. It actually is just beginning. And I, I think the other piece to that is watching your coworkers. And if you're, you know, you're having an off day, you know, let me step up and help you out a bit here. Cause you know, yeah. I had an off day on Monday and right. you helped me. And so it's really, everybody is the customer. Everybody. Right. Is We're all customers for each other. We are. We are. Yeah. And you know, I remember when I, uh, you know, now I have a very small staff. It's a, a medical assistant in a front office and I work for an amazing company called Premise Health. And we actually do, um, workplace health. So we're at Insight Enterprises. So mm -hmm. what we do is we have a tiny little clinic and we take care of the health of like 1,500 uh, employees and their families. And what I learned, I actually went to a meeting the other day, which was so amazing. And I didn't realize how robust the support system at at Insight was with the HR team. We have a, a company that we work with called MyQ Health and it's Quantum. Mm -hmm. And basically... All of our patients, actually, I can refer them to Quantum, and Quantum will hold their hand and make sure that they're actually followed up with the specialist, making sure that if they're pregnant, that they're getting, like, advice and stuff. And I didn't even have the idea that, like, <laughs> I knew that these pieces existed, but I didn't know how robust they were. And I was really excited because we had an opportunity to all face-to-face -face get to meet each other, get to know each other's personalities, and what we could do with each other to help create a much better patient experience. Yeah, wonderful. And and that really turned me on. I was like, wow, I didn't know that. And then we work with a Maribyn and Maribyn's looking at all the bills. And if the bills aren't right, they're reaching out to the patients. And and so I feel really fortunate where I work now that we have all these robust systems in place. But let me back up to where I used to work. I loved my practice. I had a great business partner. Um, I chose to leave 
three years ago. Um, he has carried on the practice with great grace and dignity, but it was hard because it was two partners, a staff, everybody with a lot of needs. We're, we're a family practice. We take, you know, 25 different insurances. We're being told that if if this person doesn't go for their colonoscopy, we're not going to be a United, you know, five-star rated. We're not going to get reimbursed as much. And our reimbursements weren't as good as the big boys. And that's the thing in healthcare, everybody. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and, and I want to chat with you about that. It's not fair. Small practices do not get reimbursed as well as the big boys for the same level of service, the same patient experience, especially. And so kudos to those small practices that are still making it out there. So can you allude to me a little bit, like when you talk to like a small practice that's really struggling financially, it's trying to make it and they're trying to do all the right things by their patient. They're trying to, how do you deal with that? And then you deal with these big, like, let's say a Cigna doc in the box. How do you deal with it? We, you know, that is such a challenge and that, that can be disheartening for some, you know, and I think when the medical practices that uh, many of those who really en- enjoy the workshops are probably the lowest paid on, on the payroll. That's and what I was thinking. Yeah, they have the most experience mm-hmm. or the most impact, I think, with the patients very often. So, you know, Barbara, it comes back to this notion of empowerment, that we're a team to make this practice successful. I love coming to work here because my coworkers, they trust me. I trust them. We're all in this together to make right. to treat our patients and to make this practice successful because it does take everybody. Is it is it unfair that the big guys do better at the reimbursement piece? Absolutely, it's unfair. And I wish that I had a solution to that problem or and even I, we've identified the problem statement. It's going to take us a while to, to identify the solution on that. I do think something that is crucially important is physicians typically don't get a lot of business training. There are some out there, yes. you know, there's scientists, you know, and so, and there are some out there who are very good business people, not a lot. They also may not understand the importance of hiring the right people. And I know that there may not be a lot of loyalty in some practices that the staff will go down the street for 10 cents more an hour and they move around a lot. So you've got turnover and you've got all of that. People, I believe that people are gravitating or they're drawn to have a career in healthcare because they want to help and serve right. people and they get into it. They weren't prepared for the monotony because there's a piece of monotony to always seeing sick people. They weren't prepared for the office politics. They weren't prepared for the crabby, cranky coworkers or patients or the bratty doctor or, or whatever it might be. But, you know, that's life. Right. You're, you're going to get that at the practice down the street. That's just the way things are. In most jobs, really. In many jobs, it's very much like that. So, so Sometimes we see in some of these practices that the practice manager, who is a crucial part to running that business, they might be somebody who has been around for a while and they were hired five years ago because my neighbor's niece thought that they could do a good job as receptionist. And they kind of have the Peter principle where they kind of work into another role that they're really not qualified to do. And yet physicians, I can't fire her because I depend on her. And sometimes they hold the information close to the vest so that they have job security. So sometimes we have those hard discussions, those difficult discussions with the leadership too, that the problem is in this key position. And it's better to find the right person and maybe have that open for a while but and, you know, kind of struggle through some of that. But, but allowing that kind of behavior just perpetuates the problem. And how do they 
take that when you make those kinds of suggestions? How I, I mean, are they pretty open to it or like, nah? You know, it works a couple of different ways. We have a client coming on board right now where they have they have a, a staff person who technically she's outstanding, but she's not mature enough to understand teamwork and she's a real problem and she's, you know, she's drawn lines in the sand and she, so they, she just, the office manager just needed to kind of bounce it off of somebody and realize that she was making the right decision about letting this person go. And it would be better to have that person absent, that position open and get through that um, and get the right person in there and they'd all have to step up to it. She needed to kind of just talk about that with somebody who said, you're on target. You're absolutely That's on great. target about this. The other piece that comes with this, then, when you go through the Passion for Patients training, and this becomes the expected behavior of the team, and somebody is not meeting that expectation, you know, we don't come in to have to do a reduction in force because of non-performance. That's the job of the office manager or, or the physician. But when you raise the level of expectations on, on medical etiquette culture and somebody's not meeting them, that starts down the road to be able to, to uh, you know, tidy up on the team a little bit. And I think actually when everybody goes to school, we need to have that kind of training and we need to talk about that. And I know there's so much to learn in medicine, the science and everything like that to get out there to be able to start producing income and stuff like that. But I think it would be awesome if every school went through something like a training session just to start opening up that conversation so people understand what they're getting themselves into. I think you're right on target. And that's the next phase in our business Good. is I'd love to get into medical schools. They're starting to do that in some medical schools. There's there's some you know soft skill training around that, but even in the schools for medical assistants and CNAs or billers or any of that, you know, there's a lot of them in our valley. And when I look at their curriculum, they are heavy on tactics and technology and very light on touch. Right, and touch is it's interesting. Um, some people just have it, and some people they really have to work on learning that it was interesting i know years ago like you know I, i'm a hugger and i can tell like if somebody wants a hug you know and, and and i i really feel strongly you know in an appropriate way human touch is really important and that might be the only touch that they get it's interesting how like some people are like i can't touch anyone i can't even look at them in the eye you know i'm like what's medicine about exactly it's about connection it's about helping you you know being entrusted to tell you your deepest darkest fears to help you work through these kinds of things to regain your health and stuff like that. And I found it really sad that it got to the point where there was a period of time where like human touch was like, no, no. And it seems like it's coming back, you know, but what's really interesting. And um, my 96 year old dad, who is a retired physician, his big complaint and listen, everybody, he's a retired physician and he's a rock star and he's in my book. <laughs> His biggest complaint is that nobody touches. Mm -hmm. He says every time that the doctor comes to see him when he was in the hospital, when they even come to see him uh, for his occasional points, nobody's laying hands. Nobody's taking a stethoscope. They're talking about him. They're not talking to him. The other thing that I think is really critical, and I hope you agree with this, is that don't talk to your patients. And figure out what their real baseline is. My 96-year-old dad is a retired doctor. He, he knows. And so, you know, you you know, I, people come to me all the time like, oh, your dad, this, your dad, that. I go, did you ask him? Exactly. Yeah. And then you can have a 12-year-old or, I mean, you can have a 22-year-old that sometimes needs somebody else in the room because they're not going to get it no matter what. And it's, it's learning 
the patient. It really is. And being respectful of respectful, that. And if somebody yeah. is cognitively impaired, yeah. you still want to talk with them exactly. and include them in the discussion. Sometimes we talked about this barrier to communication. And often it could be a caregiver. It could be yeah. the spouse who will never let the patient talk. And they're quite capable of talking. I, I think that that's a, that's a big piece to it as well. You know, back to this notion of touch. I, I don't know how we got away from it, but, but you know, the, the folks in our class, we spend a lot of time talking about that. Between each of our workshops, we space them so they can kind of acclimate and practice. Mm -hmm. And then we do homework. I send electronically, I send homework to the practice manager who sends it out to the team, and then they respond to me only. And so she, he or she, the practice manager doesn't see the homework, but that gives us a real indicator on if they're getting it, if they're not getting it, if there's a problem, we need to focus on something else. And we customize all of this. So this discussion of touch is you know, we find that people are wanting to touch their patients, but they're afraid. You know, we're such a litigious society right. now that everybody's afraid. So we we talk about appropriate touch, always ask. And, you know, as you're stepping into somebody's personal space, we do this whole thing around personal space. And right. It's just a blast. It is so fun. And people really, really get it mm-hmm. because we make it fun. But we talk about the importance. Of, and even if it's just holding somebody by the elbow as you're guiding them out. You know, on the body language stuff, we talk about how, you know, you can invite people into the discussion with your body language. So I worked in Sun City for a long time. And for a lot of retirees who are alone, going to the doctor becomes their social life. Exactly. It really does. And the practices are so busy and they want to be social, but they just don't really have the time. So we, we do a lot of work around how to graciously conclude that appointment so that the patient doesn't feel like they're being cut off, but you're able to get to your next patient in time. So there's a lot of juggling that goes on. And I'm not sure that patients always are aware of how much juggling on everybody's part just to make that patient experience. And then also we want to talk about good outcomes. So we know about the analytics and all the metrics and, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes with the reimbursement piece, but just generally outcomes. You know, exactly. When, when patients, whether you're from India or Indiana, you want to be treated with respect and compassion. And that's going to go a long way in your patient journey, in your healthcare journey. Oh, I, I totally agree. I think, and it sets the tone for, like you said, the entire experience and journey and and all that great stuff. You know, you know, I reflect on this whole conversation and it's, I am just so happy that someone like you was able to realize that there was this kind of problem and you took the bull by the horns and you're working with, with, with all of us. And it would be great to see, I think, medical schools, like you said, uh, PA schools, you know, there's a, there's a uh, movie out there that I talk about to the students and I go, um, it's called, I don't know if you saw it, the doctor with William Hurt. I think I did it's a that. great movie because what it is William Hurt is a physician um, and he's not the nicest physician. And then he becomes a patient and the entire patient experience that he has is just horrible. And he does a whole 360 in the movie about, And he realizes what a terrible person he was to his patients. (laughs) And it's an older movie. And and, and I would really like you should check it out. And I I gave it as assignment to all my PA students. And and I go, listen, you guys got to read it. Because the other thing I think that would be really, really, really good 
is that every single person in healthcare, we get to play patient for a day. <laughs> we get to go in and we get to wait for two hours in the ER and then we go into the room. And then if it's a bad experience, then like, you know, you have to go to the restroom, but no, they got to put a catheter in there and you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And it goes on and on. And I'm not saying, listen, we have great experiences out there, but there are these experiences that people share with me and I personally have had in my cancer journey where you go, well, that was really interesting. But I got to say, for me, I was very blessed that most of my experiences have been really good. Mm -hmm. And But mm -hmm. um, I think I'm a little more savvy and I think they know and I know what the expectations are and I know the mm -hmm. right questions to ask, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing is like empowering your patients to ask the right questions, empowering uh, your staff to ask the right questions. Now, I'm going to get into another little dicey little subject, EMRs. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't want to get in trouble here, but <laughs> the EMR has a great purpose. I get it. But if people don't put in all the information exactly right, what I found is that every time there's a bridge to the next step from like a hospital discharge to a sniff or maybe you going from the PCP to the hospital. Everybody's so reliant on the EMR for the right med list, the right allergies. They're not asking the question sometimes. And what happens is there's so many medical errors. And so I think EMRs are great. But the thing that bothers me and bothers my patients is that can we somehow come up with a way that we're not staring at our computers and our iPads and just actually put them down off to the side and for five minutes, look at the patient and just have a conversation? How can we become more efficient to do that? My One of my favorite physician friends, he, he's not my doctor, but he's a pulmonologist in the Sun Cities area. Mm -hmm. And he's a little bit non-traditional uh, in his style and his patients love him. And he wags his finger at medical staff and support staff all the time saying, you cannot stand at the hospital room door with your iPad and expect that you're going to be able to treat your patient. You need to go in that room, sit on that bed, I love touch guy. their skin, smell their breath, look in their eyes, spend time with them and talk about everything besides their illness. Talk about other things because you'll get their story on that. Exactly. Dr. Ron is just the best on that. And I think it comes... I think it starts in the training. And I think with everybody, with the physicians and with the PAs and the nurses and, you know, all the way through, it's it's really about if you're drawn to healthcare, that that career, because you want to help people, you know, keep that in your mind's eye about why you're really drawn to do this. And you have to look people in the eye and hold their hands and touch them and be close to them. It can't be. And, and that's to your point about electronic medical records. Another piece to that is that that is discoverable information. Right. So if you put in that my patient Karen was, and you make disparaging remarks, and sometimes that finds its way in there and that practice gets sued, that's discoverable. So just right. keep it, you know, keeping it to the facts, please. And I think that, and I think that makes so much sense. And, you know, I pride myself by trying really hard not to ever have the computer in the room with me. Good for you. And I get my work done. I'm pretty efficient, uh, I, but it's, it's, I've done it for a long time yeah. and, and, and I have a pretty good relationship with my patients and they kind of know, we all kind of know where we're at. I love the fact that my medical assistant can go in with the computer and she can update some things for me 
and have that moment and talk to the patients. And I encourage her to do that. But when I walk in the room, uh, I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but I will not have my computer in front of me talking Good. to a patient. I just, and, and I tell my students, I go, there's a way to do workarounds. If you really, really want to get to know your patient, don't do it. And and then that's the things that, that, that I have feedback I get is that they love that. And mm-hmm. I go, well, that's how I was, I was trained. I mean, yeah. I, I just don't, I, I feel so bad for practitioners that are so, so busy that they feel like, okay, I get it. There's certain analytics when the patient arrives to when the patient appointment starts, the goal is 10 minutes. And that is the goal at our company. Mm -hmm, I get mm -hmm. that. So then, you know, the goal of you should have your notes done by a certain time and, and all that kind of stuff. What I'd really like to see is those things, but also the patient's impression of the appointment. We get that as well. I just think we have to be really careful with analytics and metrics and make sure that we're really measuring the right things. And we're not making providers feel so threatened and intimidated by it. And the younger providers, I think, are. That's what I'm kind of seeing. I am, think, I, am I, I right? Because that's think, what I wanted to ask you this question. I think you've hit that right on the head that, that you know, the system is is intimidating and is overbearing. and the And the older ones are just done with it. And the younger ones are intimidated by it. You know, I've enjoyed my primary care physician and I've watched him grow his practice. What he does is he has a scribe come in the room with him who is a medical student. So I feel like not only is he, is my doc totally focused on me, but he's teaching this medical student as well. That's cool. That just makes me just, you know, I I just admire him so much for that. I want to share one more thing with you. Um, A couple of years ago, we became Passion for Patients International because we were able to land a client in Grand Cayman. Yes. Wow. Let's, can I go with you next time? <laughs> Karen and I are going. <laughs> well, this will be your medics. This is, it's been amazing because we, we did uh, a week's long training at Health City Cayman Island, which was Mother Neat. Teresa, Dr. Shetty's model of, yeah. of primary, of, of the healthcare system there. And 90% of the people in the class, which was, it was from the receptionist at the mm-hmm. hospital all the way up to the the senior pediatric cardiologist. They had everybody in between, housekeeping, food services, lab, everything. 90% of them were from India because they intentionally recruit their physicians Mm -hmm. and their medical staff from India. You know, India has something like 220 different languages. One of the challenges that they had was these young people are 7,000 miles away from their family, so naturally they kind of congregate with, you know, like-sounding dialects. We call it cliques. Mm-hmm. Clicks does not convey easily to that group. They didn't right. know what a click was. But the leadership says we have to break up these clicks because the patients experience that. You know, typically they are a very soft spoken group and, you know, their personal space is pretty distanced. And so what we talk about here in our culture is very different mm-hmm. from what they talk about in their culture. However, this hospital really had their toe into medical tourism. People go right. to brand came in and they go there for the orthopedics. I mean, it's, it's, you know, medical destinations for that training that group taught us so much and they, they really stepped up and, and, and taught us a lot in the training, but we also enjoyed working with that group because of these things that we're talking about. Wow. What an experience. Yeah. Some of these very young physicians were very high achievers and well, I tell you, they were wanting to see patients quickly, and we worked with them about slowing that down a little bit. And it's okay to look somebody in the eye. It's okay to ask for permission to step into their personal space. Mm-hmm. It's okay to 
to touch them when you let them know that you need to touch them on the shoulder. And it was eye-opening to them. And these were brilliant young physicians, but they didn't learn any of that in medical school. Right. Gina, what an amazing business you have. Thank I you. am like a huge fan of yours. I've been wanting to meet you forever and ever. As soon as, I heard about, as soon as I heard about your business, I'm like, yes, I want to learn everything I can. Thank Do you. you have some final thoughts for us? Well, as as always, um, I'm thrilled to be here. Another next phase of my business is we're about to license our materials. So we will go beyond uh, Cayman Island. Great. We have a client in Dubai that really wants to teach at the hospitals there. And so I have a connection who will teach this. So we'll get yeah. our materials licensed so that she can do that. That's really exciting. Hey, for some final thoughts, everybody. One of the things that, you know, I really want to emphasize with this entire conversation is we all have a passion. Providers are passionate. Our staff are passionate. Our patients want the best care that they can get. And uh, it's just, it's an honor. And we're all grateful to be able to serve our patients. It's gotten a little crazy. We're not going <laughs> to deny that. But everybody's heart, I think for the most part, they go into medicine or their right reasons. And it's just learning how we all can better communicate and have better outcomes and feel better about what we're doing, not feel burnt out. Because right now, physician burnout is huge. And I'm really, really worried about the future of medicine, especially in the United States with the burnout. And that's one of the things that, you know, we have to start addressing is that why are we burning out? Well, it's probably volumes. It's probably all these expectations. It's probably we went into medicine because we had an idea and it didn't turn out exactly the way we want, you know? And so the whole idea of just trying to bring people together to, to help everybody out for better experiences, what Passions for Patients is all about. It's about everybody. It's not just the patient, but it's about the providers. And as Barb asked the PA, uh, the website, www.askthepa.com and I'm on Facebook, uh, Best of Health Radio is always a pleasure for me to be able to bring people on like Gina and all these other amazing people that we've had that are wanting to give back to the community and want to give uh, 100,000%. Well, this is a wrap up for this show. Uh, until next time, uh, we'll have another show in May. May is Melanoma Awareness Month, so don't be surprised if uh, there isn't some sort of twist with that amongst a couple other surprises. Karen Nowicki, thank you so much for the honor of being able to be here and uh, for allowing me to have my show. Have a great one, everybody. Thank you. Good night.